This is the first of four podcasts exploring some of the poetic opening moments in the history of cinema. Not the greatest, the longest, the most beautiful or technically innovative. Just some poetic moments. By which I mean opening moments that encapsulate the film's content. What I call a compound moment. What we see and hear is so strong, it doesn't merely open the story, but succinctly establishes character, time, place, and above all, theme. This first episode will look at how a film's opening shot and its accompanying sounds can establish all those elements. John Ford's The Searchers begins with a door opening onto the Texan Plains, and for me, it is like opening a book to tell a story. And while the camera moves from inside the homestead out to the blazing sun, I always feel I am entering into the pages of a novel. For other people, a great opening shot is the extended take that John Carpenter used to grip audiences in Halloween. Those shots are tracking shots, and that is what this episode will focus on. Shots where the mobile camera is deployed to establish and develop both the story and its thesis. For most cineasts, the very sense that an opening shot can bring a dramatic and thematic weight began with Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. The screen fades in on a chain-link fence on which a sign is hung announcing no trespassing. And everything else that happens thereafter is in open defiance of that order. But when it comes to Orson Welles and opening shots, there really is only one film to mention. Touch of Evil starts in close-up on a timer being set on a bomb that is then hidden in the boot of a car. The camera then whisks us away to follow innocent members of the public as they weave their way around the town on the Mexican-American border. The shot goes on so long, over three minutes in fact, that while we might temporarily lose sight of the car, not for one second do we forget that at any moment the bomb may go off. Besides being a magnificent technical achievement, it works in other ways. Setting the location, and with its camera that snakes over the buildings and through the streets, it sets the sinister, almost sadistic tone for what is to follow. But other than marvel at how it works, what else can be said about it? For a long time, it seemed that everything had been said. However, in recent decades, what with modern terrorism and IEDs, it has been given a strange new vitality. And that's not mentioning Donald Trump's call for a wall between Mexico and America. Of course, one of the reasons why Wells' opening shot was such a landmark was because of the technical demands he placed on his camera crew. Nowadays, with lighter and more nimble equipment, it's not so much the technical achievement, but the reason that compelled the director to design the shot in the first place. Why did they feel compelled to shoot it in that way? And would it have not worked any other way? Brian De Palma famously spent weeks in early 1998 choreographing the seemingly uninterrupted 20-minute take that opens his paranoid thriller, Snake Eyes. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to a Powell pay-per-view television event. It's hard to believe, but tonight's heavyweight fight is the swan song for the grand old Atlantic City Arena. The final event to be held in this storied hall before it is gutted and completely renovated as part of Gilbert Powell's Millennium Hotel and Casino. I say seemingly uninterrupted because... With the aid of post-production effects, 
there are in fact eight cuts that were digitally stitched together to make it appear all the one shot. As is so often the case with De Palma, it is bravura filmmaking. But equivalently, as is so often the case with De Palma, what is the point? An interesting, and I think justifiable reason for opening your film with an uninterrupted take can be found in Spira Stethalopoulos' PVC-1. It premiered at the Cannes Film Festival in 2007, and all I can say is if you missed the opening shot, you've missed the entire movie. It is based on the real-life story of Colombian extortion victim Elvia Cortez, whose assailants hung a 12-pound pipe bomb around her neck and threatened to detonate it if they didn't receive their ransom demand of $7,500. In the film, it is Ophelia, a mother to a young girl who was straddled with the bomb, and Stathalopoulos' ambitious design was facilitated because of the Steadicam that enabled him to cover the six kilometres over which the terror takes place. But again, did the story demand that it be filmed in that way? By staying with the victim all the way through the deliberately paced 80-minute running time, you live in real time the unbearable panic Ophelia experiences. Stathalopoulos' movie may have been one uninterrupted tracking shot, but it certainly wasn't the longest. But to be fair, I'm not talking about time. I'm talking about space. In 1997, Robert Zemeckis decided to boldly go where no other filmmaker had gone before. He brought to the screen Carl Sagan's hard science fiction novel, Contact. Sagan's story had ironically started life as a film script in 1979, with Sagan spending months struggling to develop his sprawling idea. The idea? Well, it's there in the title. By 1980, Sagan had completed only a 100-page treatment and soon realised that his thematic vision would be better served in the form of a novel. Published in 1985, it became a bestseller, with Warner Brothers swiftly securing the movie rights. Roland Joffe, recently Oscar-nominated for The Killing Fields, was attached to direct, but encountering script problems, he bowed out, only to be replaced by George Miller, who stayed on board only to bow out for similar reasons. Finally, Zemeckis, hot off his success with Forrest Gump, came up with an ingenious way to open the film and thus encapsulate Sagan's theme. Essentially, the plot focuses on humankind receiving the first intelligent signal from outer space. Which might suggest that Zemeckis would begin his film with the message coming to Earth. But no, Zemeckis went in the opposite direction. He takes us not only away from Earth, but across the universe out of the solar system and deep into the furthest recesses of the cosmos. And as we travel away from the Earth, we hear different sounds. Sounds that seem to come further and further from the past. And then we hear this. Which would suggest we have come to a stop. But we haven't, and what happens next is more important. We finally find ourselves emerging from the eyeball of a young girl. This is W9GFO here. Come back. Was all that just happened in her head? Here is where I think Zemeckis' opening shot transcended mere technique and elevated itself into theme. The young girl is Ellie Arroway, and the journey Zemeckis has just delivered foreshadows the journey Ellie will later take as a grown woman. 
In that latter journey, she has a very strange experience. Which may or may not be accountable by science. In other words, that latter journey may have happened only in her head, just like the opening shot. In which case, the tracking shot didn't travel all that far. But of course it didn't, because for almost all of it, the only tracking that took place was inside the mainframe CGI artists used to render outer space. The sudden changes in music and sounds at the opening of Contact also happen at the start of this movie. It begins with the camera looking up at the sky, and then it pans down onto the ramp between the 105 and 110 freeway in Los Angeles. Why did Damien Chazelle choose to open La La Land with a dance number covered in one continuous take? For me, it has a lot to do with its choice of location. One of the afflictions of modern urban life is the traffic jam. We've all been there, and so we know the feeling of being stuck. But in this case, stuck is more than just a verb. It proves to be an adjective describing the principal characters, Sebastian and Mia. But before we meet them, the film does one of the things we do when we're in cars. Listen to music. Either the random tracks on the radio, or to our own personal playlist. But no matter where music comes from, persistent rhythm causes a physiological reaction within the human body. It compels us to move in time with it. We want to dance. So, from seeing a long line of cars in gridlock, we are then treated to the most fantastical option unavailable to early morning commuters. The opportunity to get out of the car and not bellow at your fellow drivers, but rather sing and dance with them. For me, Chazelle chose to film it in one unbroken shot for a number of reasons, not least of which was a reaction against the way musical numbers have been presented in the last number of decades. Since the advent of the pop video, the tendency has been to rapidly cut around the dancers' movements. The visual crescendo that accompanies the opening number, where more and more drivers become singers and dancers, all uninterrupted by the editor's splicer, the giddier the sequence becomes. But if music and rhythm were all that Chazelle was delivering, it would not have been enough. The opening frames capture a morning sun so bright, the sky is bleached, and the first cars we see are silver. The only strong colours are the red casings on their taillights. Then we see a mustard car, a red car and a blue car. Now let's look at how the colours of the clothes worn by the dancers progress as well. We close in on a green car and the woman who emerges is in a yellow dress with white polka dots. She is quickly joined by two men, each in t-shirts, one blue and one green. The song began as a solo and now quickly has developed into a trio. When the camera whip pans around to find the rest of the commuters dancing, there is a rush of powerful reds, and by then, we are in a chorus of colour. Purples, pinks, aquas and azures. Day of sun. Day of sun. Day of sun. 
The song may have climaxed and the commuters may have returned to their cars, but the shot isn't over. And here is the real reason why I think it works. The fantasy has ended and the reality of the early morning commute returns. But Chazelle then cranes down to a maroon coloured car where a young man is frustratedly whipping through his cassette player trying to find a specific point in a jazz number. Jumping through the melody is a subtle repetition of the start of the sequence when we heard the different songs as we passed the different cars. But settling on this car, the camera is asking, who is this man? The camera doesn't give us time to discover and instead moves away towards the car in front where we come to a young woman speaking on the phone. But then we realise she is not on the phone but doing what so many people in LA do, rehearse their lines for the big audition. Chazelle's decision chimes with the fantasy versus reality that we have just witnessed. Everyone in all those cars is dreaming of another life. And so too is this woman. Who is she? And who is beeping at her? What Chazelle has delivered is a very original and elaborate meet-cute scene. But I ask you, where did the opening music come from? Who composed the music the commuters were dancing to? In the second episode, we'll be looking at opening shots where the camera does not move. <laughs>